The reading of, of God's word comes from Joshua 20. Would you read with me? Then the Lord said to Joshua, say to the people of Israel, appoint the cities of refuge of which I spoke to you through Moses, that the manslayer who strikes any person without intent or unknowingly may flee there. They shall be, they shall be for you a refuge from the avenger of blood. He shall flee to one of these cities and shall stand at the entrance of the gate of the city and explain his case to the elders of that city. Then they shall take him into the city and give him a place and he shall remain with them. And if the avenger of blood pursues him, they shall not give him up to the man, they should, shall not give up the manslayer into his hands because he struck his neighbor unknowingly and did not hate him in the past. And he shall remain in that city until he has stood before the congregation for judgment, until the death of him who is a high priest at the time. Then the manslayer may return to his own town and his own home to the town from which he fled. So they set apart Kadesh in Galilee in the hill country of Naphtali and Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim in Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the hill country of Judah. And beyond the Jordan east of Jericho, they, they appointed Bezer in the wilderness at the tableland from the tribe of Reuben and Ramath in Gilead from the tr tribe of Gad and Golan in Bashan from the tribe of Manasseh. These were the cities designated for all the people of Israel and for the strangers sojourning among them. And anyone who killed a person without intent could flee there so that he might not die in the hand of the avenger of blood still till he stood before the congregation. This is the word of the Lord. Let us go to the Lord in prayer and ask for his blessing. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you to hear your holy and inerrant word so that we may be moved and changed, that we would become more and more in the image of your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, this word is nothing if you are not behind it. May we experience your power. May we experience the Holy Spirit. And may it change our hearts and our minds so that we learn to love and have compassion and that we would be on fire for you. We thank you, God. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Wax on, wax off is an iconic phrase from one of the greatest films in cinematic history, The Karate Kid. And this is a great movie. It's so satisfying. And if you haven't seen The Karate Kid, it's simply about a boy named Daniel who has moved into California. He's getting bullied, and he wants to learn karate. So he learns karate from Mr. Miyagi, who is not a typical dojo karate teacher. He's actually the superintendent in his apartment complex. He doesn't have a regular group of students, but he know, Daniel knows that Mr. Miyagi knows karate. So he goes to Mr. Miyagi's house to learn. And instead of doing the normal kicks and punches, Mr. Miyagi puts Daniel to work. He makes him clean his house. He makes him clean his car and makes him repaint everything. And this goes on for several weeks. 
And what happens is Daniel gets frustrated. He says, what is the point of all this? Why do I have to do these things? Why am I washing your car? Why am I painting your house? I wanted to learn karate. And in the scene, which is amazing, he says, show me the movements that you have been doing week after week. What is it? Wax on, wax off, paint the fence, paint the house. And he kept doing those motions. And then Mr. Miyagi unleashes a flurry of punches and kicks, and Daniel is able to block all of them. And he had finally understood that he knew karate. And it's an amazing scene because what we did not know is that Mr. Miyagi was preparing the mind and body of Daniel to receive the gift of karate. It's amazing. All these times, and it's satisfying especially for a teacher because we hear this so much from students, probably for parents too. Why do we have to eat this? Why do we have to do all this? And it's when they finally understand that this is all for their benefit, then we find joy and we understand why all this has happened. What in the world does this have to do with Joshua chapter 20? Well, I think we're having a Mr. Miyagi moment here in Joshua chapter 20. Because you see, up to this point, all the land has been been given away. God is giving away all this land. All these people are happy. But then it's weird that in the middle of all this, God would stop and say, now listen, there's going to be six cities that you need to appoint, and you're going to label them the cities of refuge. And it's an interesting place because God has talked about it before, but why now? And I'm convinced that God set this up so that the people of Israel would begin to train their body and their hearts to receive the thing that they had longed for the most. This is what Joshua chapter 20 is doing. And hopefully that will become more clear as we go through the passage. So, this is the wax on, wax off moment. At least one of them. First, what in the world is a city of refuge? Why is it in the Bible and where does it come from? It first comes from Exodus chapter 21, 12. Now, if you know anything about Exodus, this is where all the Ten Commandments are given, the sacrifices are given, um, all the laws that are going to be had in the nation of Israel. And in 21, God begins to touch upon the subject of murder. And this is what he says in verse 12. This is chapter 21, 12. He says, whoever strikes a man... So that he dies shall be put to death. Here God begins to talk about the sin of murder, of taking another person's life. And God took this issue very seriously, saying that if anyone murders anyone, there is no due process or there is no trial. This person is to die. And this is consistent of who God has been and who, how he has revealed himself to the nation of Israel. In Genesis chapter 9, verse 6, as he was making a covenant with Noah, he said this to Noah. He says, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. God is a God of justice, and this is how he will enact justice on those who murder his creation. So this is a big point. But in chapter 21, verse 13, God adds this caveat for the first time. He says, but if he did not lie in wait for him, but God let him fall into his hand, 
then I will appoint for you a place to which he may flee. So here is the very first time where God brings up this concept of intention. What was the intention of this person? If this person did not intend to kill them, then I will appoint a place. And so people are like, okay, a place. It's not until Numbers 35 God readdresses this issue and he says, actually, it's not just one place. I'm going to establish six cities. Numbers 35, verse 6, he says this, The cities that you give to the Levites shall be the six cities of refuge, where you shall permit the manslayer to flee, and in addition to them you shall give 42 cities. Here, for the first time, it's revealed that the Levites would not get a piece of land, that they would get 42 cities, and of those 42 cities, six were to serve as cities of refuge. We are also introduced to these two people who are going to be affected by this new law. One is the manslayer. The Hebrew word is simply murderer, but I guess the translation wants us to get at the fact that this person is not yet guilty of murder. It's just that this person has killed somebody. And the second person that is going to be affected is the avenger of blood. It's an intense title. Who is the avenger of blood? Numbers 35 verse 24 tells us that the avenger of blood is someone who is in the family. It's actually the same word used for kinsman redeemer. The kinsman redeemer is also the avenger of blood. What does this all mean? So instead of going through the laws, I'm going to just show you how this law actually works out if it were to happen in real life. Say, Pastor David and I were setting up for worship service because we love you all. And then David is like, let me get the speaker. And I said, okay, I'll hold on to the bass. And here David tips the speaker over and the speaker falls on me and I die. It's tragic. And what happens is, David automatically is now the designated manslayer. And what he has to do now is get to a city of refuge. Let's say it's Washington, D.C. He has to get to Washington, D.C. But now everyone has seen this and they're shocked. They notify the avenger of blood. Who is the avenger of blood? It's my brother. He now has to avenge my death. So David needs to make it to Washington, D.C. for him to be free. But if my brother gets David before David gets to Washington, D.C. and kills David, it is a righteous killing. It is an intense game of tag. Here, what they have to do is get to the city, hear uh, before the elders, see what they have to do, and if the elders say that this manslayer did not intentionally kill the person, then he will be free. Uh, he will be safe for the rest of his life. Now, many things are made about this city of refuge. It's like it's such a great place. That's where people, you know, are revived. But let me put this out there. The city of refuge is just a modern-day prison. Because once you go to the city of refuge, you are there for life until the high priest dies. So you don't get to talk to your family. You don't get to do anything like that. You go to the city of refuge where all the Levites are, and you stay there for the remaining period until the high priest dies. So if you go there as a young man, and the high priest is a young man, you're going to be there for a very long time. 
But if you're a young man with an old high priest, most likely you're going to be there for a short time. Interestingly enough, if you're an old man with a young high priest, even if you die, your body is not allowed to be removed from the city until the high priest dies. So that is how the law works. What is the purpose of all this? Wax on, wax off. The nation of Israel is just to keep doing this for a period of time. They do it for generation after generation. This is going to be a hallmark of Israel. And what do we see, what is supposed to be learned by all of this? This is what I think we're supposed to learn about God. First, God is letting Israel know that this nation will be a nation marked by justice. It will always be on their minds, the laws of God. Everything that is set up, everything about the rhythm of their life, people will always be thinking about justice. If you think about it, there are six cities, and these roads all lead to these cities. And as people do commerce and travel, they will see these roads, and they'll ask their mommy or daddy, what are these roads? And then they'll begin to talk about things, and they'll say, oh, these are the roads that lead to the cities of refuge. It's shown in history that there were signposts that made it clear of where the cities of refuge were. This was a big part of their life um, growing up, and it becomes a big part of their life always. So they begin to understand that God is concerned with justice. Here's another thing that we learn about God during the establishment of these six cities. That intent matters. That the heart matters. Before, um, in other nations, it didn't matter what you thought or what you intended to do. It all, it, it, the only thing that matters is what you actually did. So you could say, oh, uh, I, I killed this person, but I didn't intend to. It doesn't matter. What you did is truth, and that's all that matters. Here God is saying, with the establishing of the six cities, I will look into your heart. I will care about what you do or what you intend. So much so that these six cities will be a permanent fixture in the nation of Israel. And here's one of the main things. So people should have known, the Pharisees should have known, when they were battling with Jesus, all they kept talking about is their outward actions. But Jesus kept saying, but God cares about what's in the heart. They missed this, even though it was ingrained in their whole system of living. God is concerned with justice. God is concerned with the intent or concerned with your heart. Final thing. Why are there six cities? Why not just one place? Well, if you actually put these cities onto a map, uh, Joshua, you need a map to understand a lot of these things. But if you actually put down these cities, you see that there's three cities on the west side and three cities on the east side. And they're all kind of equidistant from each other. Why does God do this? Because he's telling Israel, everyone will have equal access to this justice. If it was just in one place, people from the way north would travel maybe many days and never get to the city of refuge. But God made it so that no matter where you are in Israel, you would have about the same amount of time to get to the city, no matter where you were living in Israel. Here God is showing that he wanted everyone to have equal access to this justice. And as you take a step back, you begin to realize that God actually gave a lot of equal time to a lot of people. And then you begin to realize that God's concept of justice 
is amazing. It's revolutionary. As Israel was making their laws for this nation, they did not look like any other nation around them. See, the, the, the big law or the big law system that was popular back then, back then was the Code of Hammurabi. That is the one that everyone studies. Everyone says it's the ancient Near East. That is the standard law that everyone needs to follow. But let's read some of their laws as they talk about their practices when it comes to murder. Here. If during a quarrel one man strike another and wound him, then he shall swear, I did not injure him wittingly and pay the physicians. So if you hit a guy and all you said was, I didn't mean to do it, then you're off the hook and you just pay the doctor. Now, if that man dies of the wound, he shall swear, swear similarly. And if he was born a free man, he shall pay half a mina in money. So if the guy dies with the wound, then he has to pay half a mina. But if this guy was a freed man, he shall pay one third of a mina. Next, if a man strike a freeborn woman, so that she loses her unborn child, he shall pay only 10 shekels for her loss. Next, and if the woman dies, his daughter shall also be put to death. If a woman of the free class lose her child by a blow, he shall pay five shekels in money. So under this, there's all these certain caveats. Are you free or are you a slave? Are you a man or are you a woman? And all these things are categorized, and so that's how justice is enacted. And everyone looked at these laws and said, amazing. They truly understand justice. But what does God say? What he reveals is his justice is, applies equally to all. He says the manslayer who strikes any soul, that's verse 3. He doesn't say, is it man or woman, is it slave or free? He says any person who is killed, any person who strikes another person, these, this is the standard law for everybody. God is revealing that justice will be taken seriously and it will be taken on his terms. And the other amazing thing that we notice is that these laws will be enacted or will be made available to foreigners. The very end of Joshua 20, he says these laws apply to foreigners as well. It's not just to the Israelites. So if a person from another country comes into Israel, accidentally kills an Israelite, this foreigner will have access to these cities that has never been seen. You have to remember, these are not regular nation states. These are families. These are tribes. If a foreigner comes in and accidentally kills another person, that person doesn't have any rights. That person just dies, and everyone says, yeah, that guy was dumb for coming into another country and accidentally killing someone. But God is saying, no, the sojourner, the foreigner, also gets these rights. God is beginning to reveal his view of justice, does not just simply extend to Israel, but his justice begins to apply to the rest of the world. So, were these six cities just simply to show that God is a just God? That God is one who cares about justice? No, God can simply reveal all these things to people. 
why he truly did these things or why he established these six cities was for people to get ready for Christ. For people to get ready to accept, accept the gift that they have long been waiting for. What have the people been waiting for? If you were here last week, they are thrilled that they have this land. It is one part of the promise that they had longed for. But yet there was still one aspect of the promise they had not yet received. What was it? It was the eternal covenant. The eternal covenant where God is their God and those people are their God. Sorry. God is their people and the people are their God. It is this mutual relationship that will bond forever throughout all of time. It is the eternal covenant. And as they wait and as they establish their lands, they see that first, that this significant person will come from Judah. And two, that somehow this person is going to deal with justice and this person is going to establish this everlasting covenant forever. So how does these six cities do that for Israel? One, first you have to remember these people. Once the manslayer accidentally kills the person and, and flees and makes it safely to the city of refuge, who becomes the most important person to the manslayer and to the family? The high priest. All eyes go up to the high priest because the family now cannot avenge their family's loss. They can't kill that person. Justice is going to have to be satisfied another way. The only way justice is going to now be satisfied is with the death of this high priest. So the family now looks at the high priest and says, when you die, justice will finally have been achieved. And for the manslayer who accidentally killed this person, he looks to the high priest. And he realizes the only way this person is going to be free, the only way I'm going to resume my life and go back home is when this high priest dies. And so the whole nation of Israel, everyone who lives in these cities, began to focus upon this one office. And so they lived their life, the high priest being the focal point of the lives of Israel. And we see the ebb and flow. Every year there's a different high priest, and there the high priest is such a conflicting office. For those people who have had a loss, a family member, they might feel a little bit dissatisfied looking at this high priest every day because justice was not served in their eyes. They looked at this high priest and they said, that's all we have left. That's the only way that justice will now be achieved is with the death of this high priest. And everyone who lives in these six cities, they all are probably asking, what's the health of the high priest? How's he doing? They are consumed with the high priest because they know when this high priest has finally lost his life, they will be free. And just think about when the high priest actually dies. What are the emotions that this whole nation feels? And the whole nation feels it, right? Family members who have been lost accidentally, they begin to mourn. They are reminded of someone who's not there. They are reminded that they have lost a person to evil. But for some family, it's also maybe a time of closure. Finally, that chapter in our life is done. And so they maybe have a sense of peace that finally they have closed this book or chapter in their lives. 
But I bet you in those six cities, there is a party. They are rejoicing because finally their time has come and they can finally return home. It's this mixed bag of emotions, and it's all tied to this high priest. And year after year, generation after generation, people are going through these motions, and they're saying, what, why do we do all this? What, is God, what was God's intention of establishing this kind of system? Well, it's no secret that he was getting us ready for the coming of Jesus. And not just his coming, but for his death. Hebrews chapter 9 states this about Jesus. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent not made with his hands, that is, not this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Finally, the people of Israel understood or were beginning to understand that this thing that they longed for, this eternal covenant they longed for with God would come at the expense of his own son, Jesus. And when we look at the cross, we have to understand what that cross meant, what the office of the high priest meant. So when we approach the cross, everyone comes to the cross with a different set of emotions. For some, it's, it's this whole concept of justice. Justice will be served. God does not take the death of an innocent person lightly. That God will avenge his justice, that justice will come, and that we need to be just as obsessed with justice as God is. But it also shows us the grace of God. That God himself will take on justice himself to the point of the death of his own son. That we leave justice up to God. Not neglecting it, not ignoring it, but bringing it to God and trusting that he will take care of all the evil in the world. And so that's the great hope of the Christian, isn't it? That justice will finally be served with the coming of Christ. That God does not neutrally look over justice, that, that God does not care about the injustices of the world. He cares deeply, and he shows that through his son. But he also shows us that the cross is also a symbol of great joy. Because of those who sinned, who have been imprisoned by their sin, who have been imprisoned by the flaws and the things that they have unintentionally done, they are now free. Free to finally go home to their Father, who is in heaven. There are so many things that we need to feel when we look at the cross. And I think Joshua chapter 20 just begins to touch the surface. It begins to prepare the Israelites' heart to get ready for the flood of emotions that they're going to feel when they look at the cross. And that is why God had designed all of this, because he knew from the beginning of time that this thing that he was about to do was not a light thing. And that is why we need to continually read God's word, understand humanity. There was a purpose for all this. And this flies completely in the face of those who believe that the death of Jesus Christ was unnecessary. It is very necessary. 
because it perfectly blends God's grace, mercy, and justice together. And it is that God that we serve and give praise to. Here, God was doing a work all along. He was making Israel, this nation, understand the concept of justice, grace, and forgiveness. He was doing all of this so that we, so that Israel, the true Israel, might be prepared to receive his son, Jesus Christ. I was trying very hard to take away one feeling that I could give to you guys, but I don't think I can in this chapter. There is not one thing to feel because we're at different stages of our relationship with God, and the cross means different things to different people at wherever we're at. And I think that's okay. We're at different stages, and the cross will mean different things to us at different points of our life. And whatever you're feeling, that feeling is legitimate. Some days I might be up here shouting great joy and happiness that the cross has been achieved, that Christ has been crucified. And you may not feel that way. You may lost. You may mourn the loss of innocence or of a sin or of a tragedy that has happened to you. That is also very appropriate when you look at the cross. And so my encouragement to you today is this. Whatever you're feeling when you see the cross, feel it. Feel it and be there and give it to Christ. Whether it's joy, heartache, or closure or whatever feeling that you may have, remain in there. Because Christ will ultimately deliver you. And my other application, because everyone wants some kind of application, and I can't give it to you there, is this. When you come to a piece of scripture and you have no idea what it means, just trust in God and work with it. Struggle with it. It may just be that it's just one of those moments where he's saying, wax on, wax off, and you'll see the prize at the end. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for all that you do. Lord, your word is complex, and we thank you that it's complex. We thank you that you are not a simple God, but a God who is layered and who is beyond comprehension. We thank you that we have a lifetime to worship you. For you are worthy of that praise. Continue to move our hearts. Continue to move our bodies to prepare us continually to receive the grace of Jesus Christ. We thank you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name.